0: Hey everybody, it's Eric Torrenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today joined by two very special guests, two returning guests backed by popular demand. Greg Eisenberg and Justin Murphy. Uh, Greg, Justin, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having us.
1: Stoked to be here.
0: It was the combo that no one asked for, but they all didn't know that they needed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I, I'm excited about it. Okay, so, Justin, let, let's start with you. You've been thinking a lot about social capital. You, you, you have this term that you've you, you, reality entrepreneurship. And I'm curious for you, maybe just as an opener, if you could describe what is most interesting to you about that topic. And then we can talk about why you were so interested to have Greg's perspective on the podcast as well, and then he can get into his.
2: Yeah, sure, absolutely. So one of the biggest background facts that people, I think, need to reflect on, especially when we think about new business models and especially private membership community models, is that we really are living through a period of extraordinary cognitive chaos. I mean, there's truly, truly been a utter collapse of centralized, aggregated, sense-making abilities. And you, all you need to do is look at any kind of mainstream media, you know, flip back and forth between CNN and Fox News. And it's pretty easy to intuit that the kind of social consciousness at the mainstream, centralized, aggregate level is totally off its rocker in a way it's never been in human history, probably. And so to me, that's the real underlying background factor that makes these new movements into private communities today much more interesting and much more profound than, than I think a lot of people realize. And in my own experience, you know, I've been building my own private uh, membership community for the past year or so, and it's, it's doing well, it's growing slowly and steadily, but as it really hits critical mass, I'm looking at it and evaluating what this thing really is. And I'm like, this is way more profound and interesting than I've ever heard anyone talk about. Like when people use the word private community or membership community, it sounds so trite and basic, right? It just doesn't sound nearly as interesting as it is in my reckoning with it because the way I'm experiencing it, the way it just, because I'm not really a business person. I kind of went into the, I, I was an academic for a long time as, as some of your listeners might know. And I quit being a professor to just be more independent as an intellectual and just figure out a way to do it all entrepreneurially. And the private membership community kind of seemed like a natural, a natural model to, to build that out. And basically what I'm getting at here is What I've noticed is that building a private membership, a a thriving for-profit private membership community is this like whole other type of business model. It's a whole other way of raising capital, of allocating capital, and of distributing dividends of capital in this highly fluid, highly organic bootstrapped way that is kind of off the grid of all currently known uh, kind of social organizations. and, And also, you know, what most people have in mind when they think about a corporation. And I'm just like looking around for people who have some intuition on, on, on like how crazy and interesting and profound this private membership community kind of movement is. And, um, yeah, you Eric and you Greg are two people who I've, I've noticed seem to be paying closer attention to this than, than a lot of other people. So that's, that's my interest in, in talking with you guys about basically what is really a private membership community and what does it really point to in the longer term? Cause from where I'm sitting, it's, way more profound than people realize it's way more exciting and, and potentially significant than people realize. So that's what that's what I was hoping to talk about.
0: Yeah. And I, I'm excited to get Greg's take on it. But just for some some background for, for listeners who may not be as familiar. Uh, Justin, one you first expand on when you talk about the background factor and the cognitive, you know, uh, the, uh, the chaos, what, how do you explain how, how we got here?
2: Right. So I, I have this larger story, which is essentially about the history of media technology. You, I think you can understand what's going on by just looking at actual media technologies and, and their dominance or, or declining dominance over time, right? So the middle of the 20th century up until about the 70s was a period of the grand broadcast media. So television, radio, and newspapers were these highly centralized aggregated media technologies that kind of held society together in a way. Almost everyone read more or less the same newspapers, more or less the same TV channels, more or less the same radio channels. There was limited choice is, is the defining characteristic for, for most of the 20th century experience of what we think of when we think about media. And that had a much more profound political significance than, than a lot of people realize. because what it basically did was it, it, it acted as an enforcer of not, it didn't force people to agree but it forced people to have at least the same coordinates around which they would disagree. Right. So there's always been left media, left newspapers, right newspapers, whatever. There's always been different disagreements and divisions. But the, the fact that you had a relatively small number of highly influential broadcast media, you know, one to many um, that everyone more or less paid attention to, it created this anchor around that at least allowed disagreements to be sensible. When you have the information revolution, what happens is information processing power increases, and it becomes cheaper and cheaper to basically make your own niche media. And this begins with not the internet, but actually with cable cable television. Um, so the reason we have CNN and Fox News as opposed to you know the big the big few networks like CBS and NBC and ABC is just because it got cheaper and cheaper to basically make your own messages and distribute them to niche audiences that prefer that message. So that is already happening around the 80s with things like CNN and Fox News in the early days. Social media is just a, the, the latest instantiation of, of what is a much larger trend toward information becoming cheaper, therefore decentralized messaging becoming more and more viable. So now you can, you can profitably have a media business that is basically churning out messages for a relatively tiny fraction of the globe and that can still be a thriving, relatively big, successful, profitable media operation with a thriving community that anchors itself to that uh, to that relatively very niche uh, kind of broadcasting center. So now there's thousands and thousands of of those. So that's that's like the bigger, longer term narrative there. That's the story. That's why nowadays people think tons of different things, whether you're on the left or the right or divisions in between those two. People have some of the most diverse ideas possible and they don't even have the coordinates for disagreeing. Like they don't even disagree. It's not that we're living through a time of great disagreement. It's more that we're living in a time where people are opting into their own realities completely. And there's really no mechanism or infrastructure for those competing realities to calibrate or to adjudicate which one is more accurate, which one is better, which one others should opt into. So what you're really seeing in the, in the, in the move to private membership communities is like a kind of scrambling for uh, reality territory. You know, it's like if you can create a media company and articulate a certain model of the world with certain preferences and affinities and ideas and values, you're going to get all the other people in the world to who have the, that unique profile of, of beliefs and affinities. You can potentially get all of those within your Model of reality, but that model of reality can be totally bonkers, right? It could be QAnon, it could be it could be completely detached from what's real, and we, as a society, don't have the mechanisms for actually reining that in. So that's 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 how I see the private the move to private membership communities. It's essentially a kind of scrambling
0: for reality shares, you could say. Yeah, it, it's fascinating. My, my friend has this theory called kaleidoscope theory that basically is just gonna be this, yeah, big kaleidoscope of, of different realities and just gonna to continue to atomize and fragment, and we're just gonna go further and further away from, from coherent. And, and it's interesting when people talk about fake news, they often, and, and you just gave a great description, they focus on the news part of how, how that's evolved, but they, they don't necessarily focus on the fake part in terms of how our understanding of what's real has evolved as well. We used to believe truth was external and society, like we had more faith in sort of society or God or whoever, to determine reality and our truth. And now there's exactly this concept of our truth. We, we, we've gone way more inwards, and psychology has helped institutionalize this. Is that is does that resonate to, with you as well? Yeah, sure. I see what you're saying for sure. I think th- the fake news idea is quite
2: a, a red herring in that, you know, what everyone likes to think and say is that, you know, those other people are crazy and they have these wrong ideas and and they have fake news. But it's actually a much more terrifying problem. It's, it's actually a, a real challenge, even for the smartest and brightest people, of actually calibrating what is real and what isn't is actually harder than ever, even for the smartest people. And again, this is why I'm so interested. This is why I think private membership communities are way more profound than, than I hear anyone talking about, because at its best, a sophisticated private membership community provides the kind of attunement to reality, to the, the kind of calibration of like what is actually real in the world? What matters? What doesn't matter? This problem of, of, of too much noise and not enough of an ability to actually sort through the noise is an objective problem even the, smart, the smartest people face. But a private membership community with the right amount of people, with the right type of people that you trust, actually provides this kind of cognitive service of letting individuals calibrate themselves to reality in a more promising way than if they were just doing it to themselves. And when you think about that, the economic value of having that type of service or structure is insane, right? So I, I think actually as the noise gets worse, as polarization gets worse, and as just, yeah, the, the, the onslaught of, of noise through digital media, as that noise factor increases and it shows no sign of slowing down, if you look at like all the public, so, the aggregated public social media, it's increasingly noisy. As that becomes harder and harder to navigate to actually find the signal, the legitimate market price of a good private community is going to increase over time because what's more, what's economically more valuable than having a reasonably calibrated model of reality. And I think that's really what's at stake for the best private communities moving forward. But I'm talking a lot. I would love to hear like Greg's thoughts on any of
1: this. There was just so much good in everything you just said. You know, I I hope that everyone listening could, could really just distill that. I come at it from the sort of same, same, but different. I feel like you come at it from like an academic dissecting. Here's where the world is going. And I come at it from a very, you know, I'm a college dropout, but you know, I was, you know, I love social dynamics to me. The most interesting thing that's happening right now, first of all, I just want to, I agree with everything you're saying and you put it very eloquently. Okay. The first thing I want to say is that private membership communities are the new church. Like Period. I know there's a lot of buzz about community. I know there's a lot of people going into this space. I know that there's the community could be defined in a million ways. Is it educate? Is it things like on deck? Is it things like, you know, Jack butchers visualized value community? Like there's a, there's a spectrum of it, but I think one of the most interesting things for me in this whole private membership movement, because it is a movement is uh, people are searching for meaning and there's this narrative that like, oh, yeah, like people are joining these communities because they want to learn this or they want to do this. Uh, this morning, I got off the phone with um, someone who has a course community, uh, private community uh, around entrepreneurs. And he's doing uh, like $75,000 a month in, in revenue to his his membership. And he said something that was really interesting with me, to me, which is that he was like, people join this entrepreneurship community. They pay me like whatever, 50 bucks, 100 bucks a month. And they don't even want to be entrepreneurs. They have no intention to be entrepreneurs at all. And this is like, he's like the majority of people do not want to be entrepreneurs. And I thought that was super fascinating. And, I, and I'm, I'm thinking about it. And I'm like, so why are people joining? Why are people joining, spending a lot of money, 50 to $100 a month? You know, that's more than your cable TV you know, bundle or whatever, to join something, just to hang out with people. And that to me is a really, really interesting point. And it's where have we gotten in society that we are searching for these private memberships. So I'll stop there and just and just see if you agree with me or disagree with me on on that.
2: Yeah, totally. That that resonates for sure. I mean, I think f- what I'm most interested in about your perspective is that you definitely have your hands in more uh, communities and ventures uh, than than I do, for sure. So I'm very curious to know from your perspective when you look at the communities that you either have a hand in or that you're just observing. Do you have a sense of what distinguishes the private membership communities that are most successful, that are most impactful, that really take off from those that maybe just fizzle out or don't really work out? Like what is, what What do you think is the key distinguishing factor?
1: So I actually tweeted this morning cause I, I was thinking about this and I was like the most successful communities have four things in common. Number one, they're filled with addicts quote, you know, quote unquote addicts. And I, and I, when I said that I was kind of nervous to tweet it cause it, there's a connotation with being, you know, an addict, but I do like, for example, with my friend with the entrepreneurship community, like, These people are addicts. Like they are on it a lot, you know, and they're contributing a lot. So I I believe in that word. So number one, filled with addicts. Number two, the community creates ninety nine percent of content. And what I mean by that is, yes, you could start a community, and you could you actually should be the ones creating that content. But a successful community is one that's like for the community by the community. And it's like, how do you open basically open source or memeify? your content such that anyone could create it. So, you know, for example, like with on deck, like why is it that I see everyone on Twitter with an on deck in their bio? Like something's working. There's a lot of just like content, on deck content that I'm seeing. Uh, Number three, a sense of momentum. And the example I use is there's more new members than members leaving. I'll give you an example. I just recently moved to Miami. Um, like the many tech entrepreneurs who are moving to Miami, the IRS, if you're listening to this, I am in, my, I, in Miami. <laughs> um, so I've noticed that there's this like, every day I'm being added to a new group chat around like tech entrepreneurs around Miami, et cetera, et cetera. And it just feels like there's something in the air. When there's something in the air and you're building that, it's a sign that there's something working in your community. And then the last... The last uh, point is a sense of pride. Community design is about how do you create something that is uh, something that you can be really proud of. The example I used with um, on deck is a great is a great one because you're, you're seeing you know people it's not it's probably I, I don't think on deck is telling people to put you know change their bios. I think that just people are proud of it and that's an exact that's a hallmark of a good community is if people are proud of it and you see that with YC too right? class of 2019, et cetera. People are so proud of it. And then I think the important thing there is how do you arm, you know, uh, Toby and, and Harley from Shopify talk often about arming the rebels for entrepreneurs uh, to create stores. And I think there's that same arm the rebels concept, but applying it to uh, communities. Um, and then, so how do you, how do you arm arm the rebels, uh, in this case, to essentially, you know, wear hoodies that say, you know, on deck or YC, or just give them a set of tools that they could show up at their Christmas dinner or Thanksgiving dinner, or just go for their morning coffee and just be super proud of it. Fascinating. That, that's
2: actually a, a fascinating answer for a few reasons, which I want to chime in on. But I, I Eric is also leading a, uh, you know, membership based uh, business. So I'm sure Eric, you might have an answer to that question. Do you, have you noticed, or do you, ha, what have you learned from running on deck that ha, that could teach us something about like what what is the essential aspect of of communities that makes them succeed?
1: By the way, I see Eric while he's thinking about this. I see his face, so the listeners and I know that he like is like agreeing with me. I know he's like he feels me in a lot of what I'm saying.
0: 100. Uh, uh, no, I, I think yeah, I'm I'm gonna take those descriptions and, and credit you because I, I think that's a that's a great way of describing what, what makes communities work. And will make them flourish. I think the, I have two thoughts. I mean, one in the arm, the rebels uh, is, is, is yeah, such a good phrase um, as it relates to communities. Product hunt did a really great job uh, uh, at this. One thing they did was that anyone who was in the top five every day uh, on product hunt got a lot of traffic to their site. And what we did is we had a like featured blog that would cover personal stories over how to have a great launch. And we would have templates um, so that it'd be really easy for people almost like mad libs <laughs> like really easy for people to write posts coming from them over how product hunt uh launch changed their search sort of tra- trajectory and how to do it really well and what to keep in mind so i don't know if we got to 100 but we might may have got of these like original stories that people you know wrote about that uh, of why you know product hunt was so great for them but it was actually offering value to to, to readers and it made them look good too. And we promoted it. That was really just great and helpful example. We're trying to figure out exactly w- w- what that is at OnDeck. On the identity stuff, <clears throat> that's super interesting because we sort of lucked into it. I mean, part of it maybe is, is just the cohort model. It, it lends itself to you know, people having an identity uh, more so than a non-cohort based. Although people will still say you know product hunter or indie thinker or, or, or whatever it is but something about the cohort model but, but that, that lends itself and what makes the identity thing so powerful. One, it, obviously it's a great word of mouth tool, but two, when you are a part of someone's identity, they are going to one, say great things about it and two, really invest in it so that it's great. And we see people who are more active as alumni than they were even during their, their program because they're just invested in this credential meaning something. And so We've, we, we lucked into it. We are, we're not encouraging it because, you know, as in, we're not explicitly telling people, but we want a way to lightly encourage it in a way that doesn't prevent, you know, turn people off or or sound marketing. But I I think if if you are creating a community where the community is the product, as opposed to a wedge into some other product, I think it depends what it is, but I I think your North star is typically is their bio. um, Because I, I that's like the most valuable real estate you could have. You just said the North star is their bio, meaning is, is you having your community in their bio? Cause that, that's it in their Twitter bio, their LinkedIn bio, part of their identity so that they'll say great things about it and they'll invest in it long-term. So Eric, I feel like something you're really good at with this sort of thing is you're good at kind
2: of nudging these types of results in, in a good way that in a way, in a way that helps the community also helps individuals. And I'm curious, you know, Greg said before that, uh, you know, people are, are surely, you know, identifying with on deck organically and autonomously. But as someone running a community, I know that there's a ton that the leaders of communities do on the back end to try to encourage these types of things. And uh, so I wonder, you, I, mean, I mean, you just seem really good at that. Do you want to speak a little bit to what are the frameworks you have or the practices you have for kind of walking this fine line between trying yeah. to encourage your members to represent and share and promote? Uh, but without making it, you know, this like fake thing
0: where you're telling people to endorse it. You know what I mean? How do yeah. you how do you think about that? There's a few things. I mean, one is I, I do think I'll tell you something. You know, on deck is a community that's been going on since 2016. Uh, we started the co or model in 2019. In 2017, people weren't putting you know on decker in their their bio. There is something at least in startups and technology that YC made legible with sort of you know, their, you know, YC winter 19 or with the batch. There's something about the batch um, structure that is really legible that people, at least in technology and startups identify with. And when they put it on their bio, it means something to others. So I'm, I'm a big believer in, in co- We now we say our cohort structure is eight week onboarding to a lifelong community. And there's, you know, and, and so we're trying to to balance that, that, that as well. The other thing that we did is we uh, really well, there's two things. One is, I mean, the community had like two or three years of organic, just sort of like energy building before we ever launched the cohort. We we basically did these one off dinner series all over the world. We we said, you know, the two biggest values were, were a spirit of service, uh, like positive sum, help other people out, don't ask for anything uh, in return. And a spirit of like, we said sacredness, but this idea of like, you know, when people are talking about their ideas, it's a vulnerable time when they're in between stages, it's a vulnerable time. And so these are really positive, sum uplifting values that such that when people started to post it on Twitter, um, other people in the community would celebrate them for doing it uh, because that celebration had been a core value, like for for two or three years, built into the community. The other thing we did is we we we, and we tell this to all our cohorts at some point. You know, it'll, it'll no longer be true, but we tell them that they are on the ground floor of, of OnDeck, and so you know, when you look at the ground floor of YC, the earliest cohorts, it's you know, at least in technology, it's a legendary story. It's a Sam Sam uh, Altman, it's Alexis Ohanian, it's Justin Kahn, it's these legendary companies that not just went on to be successful with each other, but inspired a whole new generation of, of entrepreneurs. And so, and not just net acceleration, but net creation. And so we tell people that, hey, uh, we want you to be really successful with each other, inspire the next generation, and, you know, Five, when we're doing On Deck 50, you know, come in and give talks and, and be sort of the, they can sort of see themselves as Lex Zohaney and Sam Altman. And so when they put themselves out there as part of On Deck, I think part of what they think is that this is also a, um, hey, I'm planting my flag. I'm, I'm in the earliest cohort. This is going to be the next, next big thing. And that has some social currency uh, on it when you're, you know, at, at On Deck 50 that I was in On Deck 3 or On Deck 2.
2: Okay, that's interesting. Right, so you think actually numbering the cohorts has an outsized effect on identity and and people's investment and eagerness to get in.
0: And then, and then the other part is just rewarding people for when they do it. And so, yeah, we were just retweeting them, celebrating them, you know, celebrating within the, within the community, just like in a non cheesy way, but just rewarding the behavior that you, you wish to see more of. And then it, 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 yeah, the sort of flywheel um, took off. The last thing I'll say is one thing we ask in every interview and we screen for is like, what are you going to contribute to the community and are you going to be someone who um, is really engaged in the community? And there are a bunch of people we've turned down who they're like YC founders they're like really talented, but they're too busy or they're too cool for school. Like on on deck is, is is, is, it's, it's like, I'm trying to think of, it's like the kids in, um, you know, in college it's like random acts of kindness, (laughs) you know, these communities like on deck is a little bit like, like we, we screen for, for like people who are kind of like cheerleaders who are kind of like hype men and there you know some people might be like oh you know it's too much talk or whatever but like if you're too cool for school or whatever and you're not going to engage we're probably not going to you know take you and that you don't you don't need to be the biggest extrovert or whatever so we have one third of our community does it so to be sure most people don't you know put it on, on the twitter bio but most people are you know really engaged in the community and um you know would see that as as a cool thing not as a as a lame thing because they want to be in this exclusive nightclub or whatever
2: right Something that's kind of profound about what both of you are saying is that, you know, because I basically kind of asked both of you, like, what's the real essential driving aspects that, that make a valuable community a valuable community? And you're talking about things like identity and kind of social investment, social identification, and, you know, a sense of meaning and, and shared, shared purpose. What's, what's really interesting is that if you look at any kind of for-profit private membership community, the features that they list on the feature page are never, we are going to give you a better identity. We, you know, we are going to give you a sense of meaning in your life. Those are never the things that are advertised. But what, that's what's kind of interesting about what you're saying, and and I completely agree with both of you that these do seem to be the real underlying drivers. Um, but no one wants to own that in a way. You know, you, no one wants to say that that's actually what's being sold. But I'm actually you're you're both actually making me wonder because I, I mean I think I think you two have as as rigorous and accurate a sense of the underlying dynamics as anyone. I think you know, is it, is it possible that all of the different features and benefits that people associate with their private membership community, um, to kind of flesh out the value proposition, to encourage people to like sign up and pay, you know, are, are all of those features kind of like, could you actually get rid of them and everything would be just the fine? Like, could your, could your feature list be literally just, you're going to meet cool people. You're going to be a part of a brand that represents you and gives you an identity and vision and, and stimulation that is like more in line with what you believe. And, that's all there is to it. <laughs> you know, do you need all those other features that people, that people um, try to sell? Because this is something I'm struggling with as like a, a very early stage community builder. As I said, my community is profitable, it's growing and, and it definitely feels like it's, it's, it's working, it's taking off. I know that members are happy and there's lots of really cool things emerging naturally. But I'm like hustling super hard trying to provide all these different like values and services and benefits and stuff like that. And, you know, a, a provocative version of what you guys are saying is that actually you don't need any of those like services and additional things. What do you think about that?
0: I'll let Greg go in a second but yeah imagining a, a bullet point says we will fill the gaping hole in your life. <laughs> uh, Greg Greg what's your take?
1: I wish it was that easy.
0: <laughs> so what
2: is the I, role of the auxiliary activities and services then?
1: Well, here's the thing, you know, you would think, you would think what what you just outlined perfectly is exactly what you think would happen like you know, I and I've tried this, I've tried like, okay, private member community and okay, people want connection. Like going back to that entrepreneur example, it's like, okay, let's just start selling. Let's just say like come to this entrepreneur community and you know, and you're going to meet like-minded people and then you do it and then you don't convert. And I I've, I've thought a lot about it. I'm like, Hey, why is this the case? And it goes back to why human beings do certain things. So The reason why people go to a bar isn't because they like drinking alcohol. The reason why people go to a golf course isn't because they might, you know, they might not like playing golf. The reason why people play Dungeons and Dragons isn't because they potentially love playing Dungeons and Dragons. It's because it's an excuse to do a thing. Private memberships are just an excuse to do a thing. And if you sell the excuse in a really good way, then you can you ultimately could get that connection and that meaning and that sense of purpose, and that's like the secret sauce to the whole thing. It's a anno- It's annoying, right? Because you just want to be like, "Hey guys, I have this, I'm I curated a bunch of really great people. You're gonna love this. You're gonna love it." But as soon as you do that, you lose. Mm-hmm. And that's why that's one of the reasons, It's that reason and the reason of just community building is being highly nuanced. In, specifically on the internet a highly nuanced um way to position it and and defining the experience makes 90 percent of people who are going to focus on building a community-based experience like a private membership fail they're going to fail because they are you know to to your point around or to your points around all the little intricate things that let's say product Hunt has done or on deck has done which is just like tears, blood set in tears over years of time. And that's why I think that, you know, there is this thirst for people who are interested in how the hell do I build this thing? And I, and I know from just Twitter, like I started posting in the summer of 2020, really just about like, I've I've posted a little bit on Twitter about community building um, for the last five years or six years, but really started posting in the summer. And my Twitter audience doubled more than doubled in, the, in under six months. And it's just because people are, there's no accessible way to find out how to do these things because it's so new. Right.
0: Well, the thing I, I would add to that, I agree with it. You, you can't pursue it head on for the following reason, which is that for whatever reason, you know, people care not just what they get out of it, but also the story um, it says about them to join join this community. And people want connections and meaning and belonging, but to admit that you don't have it is to admit some sense of loserdom <laughs> or, or, or something. It doesn't say great things about you, which is sad, which is unfortunate, but it's sort of the reality. It impl- like, you are not know, really into nonviolent communication as an example, but it's pretty poorly branded because if you're into it, it sort of implies that you're a violent person. <laughs> or, or that's, what people, that's what people think. That's what people take from it. It's like, whoa, you, you, you know, you, you need help. And so... Instead, this this excuse needs to be something that makes you seem really impressive, like you were chosen for this thing, or you're the type of person who cares about X, Y, Z. You know, and and status dynamics can change. Like therapy, for example, has become high, used to be low status. Now in certain circles, it's high status. It shows that you really you know care about yourself. And so, w- ways to um, increase status also include like who else is involved, like what does this st- thing say about me based on what types of connotations we have with the people who are involved or the um, activities and purpose that it'll be doing because they need to tell themselves and, and you know, signal to other people that they are more impressive as a result of joining this community than, than less impressive.
1: Yeah, right? I cannot agree more. Great example of that, like analog example of that is restaurants and going to restaurants. Like if you think about it, Restaurants all do the same thing. They give you a space to eat and food. Like the utility is space and food. But like sometimes we go to restaurants to say that, hey, we went to the French Laundry or, you know, roll the slot machine of like who else is going to be there. And if we purely, you know, went to restaurants because we wanted to eat, then... (laughs) There probably wouldn't be these, you know, expensive restaurants, et cetera. So I think there's definitely some lessons learned there. I'm curious your thoughts, Justin.
2: Yeah, no, I think all of that makes sense, and I, I completely agree that there there does seem to be some kind of implicit requirement that the community that a successful private community can't just be about what it's kind of ultimately about. <laughs> and there needs to be some kind of uh, initial initiation or pretext that. I think as Eric alluded to, one defining aspect is it's both a signal of who you are and the type of person you ha- you are or want to be. So it has to be something that's hard. It's basically like a proof of work, basically. The initiate the ideal kind of pretext or initiation is something that signals your quality and strength having gone through it and that you want to share with people. It kind of defines who you are and what you're all about. And I, I completely agree with both of you that it does seem like you need to have something like that if you try to do without that the whole thing will collapse. I wonder Greg what you think about what are the ideal forms for that for that pretext or that initiation or I don't want to call it an excuse. I feel like that's not a nice word because it makes it sound like artificial, but what we're all saying is that actually it's crucial to to holding up quality and the intensity and the significance of of the membership. So it's it's certainly more than an excuse, although I know what you mean by that word. So this like pretext, let's call it people try different types of pretexts as the defining kind of service or feature or benefit of their community. And Greg, I I know you pay a lot of attention to a lot of different community experiments. So I'm kind of curious, clearly, Eric uh, has kind of gone all in on a kind of challenging high cost uh, fellowship model, a kind of cohort based initiation experience as the pretext that on deck is built on. Uh, but Greg, I'm sure you've seen people do totally different types of things for this, right? So one example that's different than OnDeck would be like MakerPad, which is uh, an organization I've, I've studied pretty closely uh, and, and inspired indie thinkers in, in large part. And their main offering is exclusive content, essentially tutorial content. That's, that seems to be the big sell that they lean on as as their reason for joining and, and, for, and for paying. Uh, but there are many others, right? There are events. There are kind of sequences of events, series of events. Um, like the interintellect community uh, does, like a high volume of semi-public ticketed events, and uh, joining gets you kind of free access to all of those. So I'm sure you've seen different ways of of organizing or formatting this this uh, pretext. I'm curious, Greg, if you have any strong opinions on which ones are better than others.
1: Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, unfortunately, again, there's there's actually no one size fits all for this. And this is the trap that a lot of people fall into. Um, You know, we have a saying at late checkout, which is, you know, my company, which is a product studio and agency and fund around internet communities is uh, start with the community and then build the software versus build the software and then find the community. And, you know, what might be really attractive to no code, the no code community for makerpad might be completely different than you know the on-deck podcasting vertical you know and i think what the the secret sauce for pretext is to really understand who these people are and what drives them and then create a vertical experience for them
2: right right
1: and i know that's not like the answer that people want to hear. Cause people want that, like, Oh, do this thing. Here's like the soundbite thing of like what you need to do to like create the pretext for your vertical. But I actually think that like if I'm starting something and I want to build something for, you know, moms in New York or moms in Brooklyn, then I, I need to spend time in that community try to understand what are the things that drive them and what are they not getting on existing platforms and what are their motivations? And what are their incentives? And then how can I create a format that is going to be very exciting for them? And that also drives word of mouth and retention?
2: Right. But something you did say before is that you you do seem to think that user generated content is is key.
1: Yeah, because I think, you know, you don't want to be in a, a situation where you're pushing, you know, I think that ultimately the greatest communities are pull and pull other people in and pull, you know, you know, it's just like they're a gravity force, you know, communities is our gravity. And I think that if you do it yourselves, it's also just like, you don't have that. If, if, if it's always coming from the community leaders and it's like, push, 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 it doesn't have that same gravitas.
2: Totally. I can relate to that as as someone who's in the early stages of this, I'm definitely pushing too much and I'm like trying to do a ton of stuff myself. And yeah, I mean that, that, that alone is a really good insight. Uh, That's not obvious because
1: think think about it as like a party, right? It's like, that's, it's the, you know, a community is a party with the right music and the right people and the right food and all that. And, you just telling people to go dance at 9 PM and telling people to go eat at 10 PM is like this like weird, awkward thing, right? It's like a good party doesn't, you don't have to tell anyone to do anything. They just go and do the thing that you want them to do. Love it.
2: Yeah. That makes total sense. And it's precisely kind of what I'm not, I'm not there yet. And so what you're saying makes total sense. It's exactly what I'm not really doing well enough yet. So um, thank you for the free consulting. Uh, I really appreciate that.
0: You know, it's interesting. I, so I'll be curious, Greg, to learn more about your friends' entrepreneurship community um, later. What, what, if we had just started as an entrepreneurship community, I'm not sure, you know, uh, we would have been able to do it. I, I think what helped us at OnDeck is I we were serving uh, a group of people at a stage that was underserved. You know, when people are looking for their next job and they can't tell people their company um, and they're looking for potential co-founders, there was kind of not much there. And so... That helped give us tailwinds, and so it, it, another question I ask in addition to is basically: Where are the moms in Brooklyn? Like, under, what are common problems or a common stage in which they are underserved?
1: I think you know, step one when you're when you're working on a community based project is to brainstorm who's the most underserved. Like that's step one. Unless unless you have a platform, if you have a platform and an audience, then you can do whatever you want. But if you don't, then it's about who's underserved and how do you create something that is interesting for that community.
2: But Greg, even if you have an audience or a platform, don't you still have to have a strong thesis about who your audience is essentially and what they want essentially, even beyond the kind of basic demographic data you can get? Like you, you do need to have a kind of theory of that. And it's not always obvious, right?
1: It's not obvious however it's e- I, it is a lot easier if you have an, a big audience because um, you have more room to mess up. you can just screw up more having a have, having a big audience is like a startup with like thirty six months runway versus like when you're starting from scratch you have like six months runway and you're and it's bootstraps to your own money versus venture capital That's like the way I would think about it
0: hmm. i I'm, I'm curious to ask both of you. How do you think about social capital? Well, what, yeah, the social capital like combination of trust, loyalty, affinity, what how do you define it? And then two, in the context of like individuals versus institutions, because I've I've sort of made you know a, a decision for like on deck to be way bigger than just me, uh, because you know, some people might resonate with some ideas, some people won't. And the idea of like private memberships around a person versus private memberships around an institution at the same time i realize that you know decline in institutions you know trust in institutions is crumbling and trust in individuals presumably is 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 rising and so here's how how you you think about you know social capital and then sort of the, the individual versus institution dynamic
2: yeah it's a great question i'd i'd, I'd love to hear greg first cuz i'm feeling these things out uh, at myself but i don't have I, I don't know that i have strong theories i can share my impressions but greg might have a, a better sense based in practice and previous success
1: so, ultimately, people resonate more with people. This is just how people are. And it's why there's cult leaders. You know, they don't call it cult companies or cult brands. You know, it's, there's cult leaders. A really good way to get started is to use yourself. And if you're charismatic or you're good on the internet, or ideally both, then it's a really good way to get started. That being said, I think that if you want to scale, having a brand is better because you can then, you know, expand into different verticals. And so for example, let's say you're starting with, let's use that entrepreneurship example. Um, like maybe he's starting with bootstrap entrepreneurs and then he can move to like no code entrepreneurs and then he can move to VC entrepreneurs and then he can go and recruit the most charismatic people in those categories. So that's my thoughts there. I think we're going to continue to see more personality-driven private memberships communities um, because I think that people are trying to figure out how to unlock value out of their social presences. And I I think that uh, people are going to see, like, for example, the Jack Butchers of the world who are killing it with visualized value or the Dave Farrells who are killing it. And they're just going to be like, well, I have a similar size audience. I could do that. And uh, you're just, you know, I think it's just early days. So those are my thoughts.
2: Right. So I I can share some interesting uh, data points here in that I'm kind of navigating this myself right now at the moment. So though I don't have strong convictions, I I do have some interesting things to share here. One Because I started basically with uh, a personal audience. You know, I have, I have a, not massive, but, but non trivial audience of people that are just interested in my ideas and my work and, and, and my kind of story. And uh, you know, so I did the whole Patreon thing, did some digital products, and had some success with that. But it was immediately apparent to me that I'm able to create way more value and do bigger and better things. And it's like Eric was saying before, uh, I need to think about how to make this less about me. And so that's why I created Indie Thinkers as a separate brand for my own personal intellectual work. Because I didn't want it to be about me, I didn't want a cult. I don't want to, you know, like be rallying my fans into these like business propositions. I want to do my own work, and if I have fans, that's great. I'm grateful for that, and I want that audience to keep increasing. But then I want a, a an actual value proposition that stands on its own merits. That's not just like me trafficking in my image or 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 fandom or whatever. But what's so- something that's really interesting that I've observed is it's really hard to do because even in creating a separate brand, not putting my name on it, hardly at all and really making it about something bigger and better. Almost all the people who come in, come in because they know me and they know my work and they're kind of interested in something about me. You know, maybe not maybe they're not like fans of me per se. They wouldn't necessarily identify as that, but um, they're, they're interested in indie thinkers because they know something about me and they like that thing about me or they identify with that thing about me. And it's a problem. It's a really interesting challenge. Uh, and, and, and it's, it's interesting because uh, what do I do about that? I don't know. Should I, I'm constantly vacillating. Like, should I lean into the personality and just kind of own that? And some some mornings, I wake up and I'm like, maybe I should just merge Indie Thinkers back into the personal brand and make it like this big Justin Murphy empire. Um, sometimes I, I wonder if that's the right move, and I'm actually like. Uh, putting an artificial break on myself by managing these like two different brands. Is that a waste of time? Should I be, should I be scaling full speed ahead, the Justin Murphy empire and and actually lean into the whole cult thing? Cause that thing that works, right? Like um, look at like Rome research, right? They lean into it and it's, it's bold. It's a bold move to lean into that. Uh, and I could totally do it. But then I'm like, uh, no, I have the same instinct that Eric has of like trying to make it bigger than me, uh, better than me and beyond me. It's, it's interesting. Cause even when you try to do that, you find that it's, it's more personality driven than, than you might think. And I don't have a solution
1: to that, but I've noticed that. If I were you, unsolicited feedback, so I'll from, from Greg. If I were you, I would apply the, the Mark Zuckerberg production strategy, which is, it's like Facebook, but at the bottom, it's a Mark Zuckerberg production in the footer. Or it's the rite of passage presented by Dave Borel. Or it's visualized value, you know, presented by Jack Butcher. And I think you have an audience. I just checked your Twitter. You have like 18 plus thousand people. Go follow Justin Murphy. (laughs) And, you know, that's that's all. People trust you. You probably have hundreds of, like, I know it's weird to say, but like you probably have fans, like legitimate fans. And it's like, that's where you got to start. What's the, I'm not a super religious person or, or whatever, but, you know the apostles or you know like what's the the initial the initial audience like you gotta that needs to be like from you that needs to be from you and I think you gotta lean into that and then over time you just kind of like slowly step back
2: okay so you do think though in the long run you are aiming for separate entities that stand on their own merits correct Right. I, I agree. So that, that basically maps onto what I'm, what I'm kind of experiencing and, and doing organically. I mean, a larger thesis here that might be more interesting. I, I don't want to make this about myself. I, I didn't intend to do that is I, I think one of the underlying, the underlying value propositions that is a little bit less talked about perhaps because it's somewhat taboo, like you were talking about before, like a lot of people ultimately are buying into a membership community for, you know, to improve their, their sense of identity, their sense of belonging, the meaning of their life. But people don't really want to talk about that. I think another example of that is people are essentially buying into shares of social capital in, in, in a way that I think people often don't want to be honest about or don't want to talk about. But I think if you actually are honest about it and you, the, the communities of the future might be the ones that see this more clearly and radically than others and are willing to actually take it seriously. And so what I mean by this is like, to use on deck as an example, you know, I think I, I suspect a, a large number of the people who um, join on deck it's in part conscious, it's semi-conscious, it's semi-unconscious. The, the actual purchase decision is like, Eric Tornberg has a lot of powerful friends. I don't have many powerful friends. I want powerful friends. Having powerful friends is economically valuable pretty directly. So I'm just gonna pay Eric Tornberg to get access, to get a, a, basically an equity share in Eric's powerful friends. And I think to me, this is like one of the real driving kind of psychological mechanisms or value propositions that make thriving, serious communities work. But
0: it, it, it's one of those things that people don't want to talk about. Do you agree with that? Or do you disagree with that, you guys? Well, I'll just say really quick. I, I think it has certainly transcended uh, me and, and more just about about the on-deck network. And I think maybe some similar to thing where people think, hey, if you know, not as powerful, of course, they've been going for a long time. But people think if they get you know the YC stamp or whatever that that will put them in a, in a more elite club. And yeah, it's tied to Paul Graham. It's tied to Sam Allman. It's tied to, you know, this, this broader, I, I, th- I think there is an, an element of that for sure. It makes me wonder what would it look like to be, even be more explicit around it? I, I know you, you've been, you know, exploring the token space,
1: but yeah. So I also know. want to say one thing. I want to say one thing. I'm not done with you, Justin. So Please. when I go to IndieThinkers.org, that's your website, correct? Uh, yeah, that's right. It's still like private beta. It's very bare bones. When I, when I get there and I believe that if you sign up to indiethinkers.org, you're going to get a bundle of, of value. I believe in that. After just speaking to you for an hour, but I need to know, I need a video of you to tell me like who you are, why, what you're going to learn. Like when I go to the rite of passage by Dave Pharrell, like I see like a video, of him, you know, like I see, like there needs to be that personality. And I think my, I, if I were you, I'd lean into that
2: more. Okay. Thanks for the, thanks for the advice. I, I appreciate it. Yeah. No, it's early days and I'm definitely uh, thinking hard with an open mind about well, these, yeah. What, these what are the nuances, have.
1: right? These are the community building nuances with Eric Torenberg and Justin Murphy and Greg Eisenberg. It's awesome, dude. Thank you.
0: Perfect place to wrap Greg, Justin. Thanks so much for, for coming on the podcast. Uh, check out, you know, Greg on Twitter, Justin on Twitter, L- late checkout, Indie thinkers uh, on deck uh, guys. It's been a pleasure.
2: Thanks, Eric. Thanks Thanks so
0: much. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.